On this episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Danielle Sean in Squamish, British Columbia, Canada. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. I try to help them tell their story, maybe like an origin story of how they got started in bike frame building. They saw it. They knew they had to do it. It was a challenge. You know, they, it was their hero's journey to figure it out. That's kind of how I like to think of one part of the show. But then also it's just a, it's pretty casual and it's a discussion of ideas and values and you know things that we've done along the way things that we think would be neat uh, i even do a segment sometimes called machine shop roundup which we did in this episode and it's fun to talk about the things in our guests shop so this week my guest is danielle sean she's been doing fabrication and metalwork and welding and and all sorts of artistic sculptural and other kind of photography different things for a long time and so we cover all of that and then how she got into bike frame building and how she found that along the way uh, lately, she's doing frame building, but also teaching frame building classes in Squamish, and they sound great. And so we talk about that some, and uh, taking a class with Paul Brody and with Yamaguchi and all these different points along the way. So I'm going to quit yapping and just roll the interview. For me, it was kind of in this time frame where I had gotten more seriously or interested in more seriously racing bikes um was doing a lot of racing a lot of alley cats you know classic young city bike fixie person shenanigans um and i had some friends who were you know racing sanctioned road races and cross races and crits and all that so i was getting more interested into that kind of stuff um but i always just had like hand-me-down bikes secondhand bikes nothing ever like super nice so and around the same time, I had just finished welding school, uh, was just starting machining school, and had the sense of, okay, this is something I think within my skill set I can accomplish. And this was also around the 2012-2013 Instagram start. There were a handful of frame builders on Instagram, not too many, certainly not like the capacity of the community now but there were a few and I, I couldn't tell you how I stumbled upon them probably just through like six-year stuff so I knew it was a thing definitely had the creative capacity and background and interest and then this newly acquired metalworking welding fabrication interest so I did a little bit of looking around and I had heard of Brody bikes before Rocky Mountain Cycles like Canadian West Coast Classic um, and learned that Paul Brody was teaching out of the University of Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, which is about an hour-ish outside of Vancouver. And I had also seen that there there were you know a handful of American builders offering classes, but obviously traveling within the country is a little bit easier. Canadian dollar has never been particularly strong, yeah. so staying within the country was a little bit more attractive. And I had lived in Vancouver previously, to that and obviously always was looking for an excuse to go back so that was kind of the precursor it was never this like I'm gonna be a frame builder 
caveat. It was just, I'm interested in this thing. Here's this thing I want to do. Oh, I can go and take a class and figure it out. All right, I want to build a road bike. We'll go do it. Sounds cool. And that's kind of been my approach to most things in life is, you know, you look around at where you are and what you're doing and what you want to do and fill in the blanks. So that's kind of what I was doing. Um, it was never this like big, I'm going to be a frame builder moment. So I flew out to, I was living in Toronto at the time. Um, and I flew out to BC and I took a course with Paul and had a fantastic time. He's just such a, a knowledgeable craftsperson. Obviously he's been building for, I would say 50 years in metal. Um, so lots of knowledge and experience there to share, um, and just from a course perspective and like having come from schooling in the trades and working in the trades before as well, um, having someone be so genuinely like interested in sharing their knowledge and making it accessible to you and like guiding you through, you know, the typical maybe like apprenticeship type of relationship isn't necessarily always like a positive, uh, great uh, relationship that people have. So like having going through this experience and it just being like really nice and fun was just honestly a really great experience for me. Um, and leaving That's that, cool. I knew that it was something that I was going to want to continue. Um, and at that point I didn't, again, like was not in this capacity of being like, all right, I'm going to be a frame builder and this is going to be my business and you know, stuff like that. But it just kind of compiled from there on out. It's interesting, you know, now you're to, to, to retell that experience you had at Brody and that you've been teaching classes more recently yourself, you know, the full circle sort of thing. Something that I've noticed a lot about frame building classes is that some people go, it's like a bucket list thing. It's experiential. It sounds like like a fun mm -hmm. vacation basically to go and to like make something cool. And that's all it needs to be. And for other people, it's more like it's almost like vocation training or something, you know, like they want to actually try and do it. And, uh, but you know, I, I, I took a class, but I haven't been on both sides of it like that. So that's probably pretty interesting for you yeah. because you, you have taken metalworking coursework elsewhere and with Paul, and now you're also teaching it. And so like you have these different sorts of, you know, vantage points at, to, to what that is. Mm -hmm. It's actually, yeah. So it's been, super interesting to kind of see it from the other side. Um, my first real taste of that actually, again, was with Paul, who I assisted back at, that was kind of my full circle moment. So I moved back to BC in 2019. Um, and Paul had been in a motorcycle accident. So he got out, he broke his leg and his arm, but you know, uh, as what the alternate would have been. He got out pretty okay, but he mm -hmm. needed some help around the shop, you know, rearing the max for his class was four students. So potentially rearing four students in a metal shop when you're on crutches is not uh, an easy task to do. Um, and it just kind of had a line that I had moved back around the same time. So um, I started assisting him back at that UFV program where I had originally learned from, uh, and that was my first ever time 
kind of being on the other side of the curtain, so to speak, and having at that point, you know, several years of experience and going through all this like frame building stuff and business and all that, and then being put back actually in the first place that I ever learned. Um, just, I mean, just assisting, you know, I'm not in charge at that point. Um, but still being expected to answer questions and show people workflow and set people up on machines and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. that was a really fun experience for me. Um, And that was kind of like me dipping my toes in the instructional part of it, which was really fun. Um, And then after, so how I ended up kind of where I am now, which is like trying to more formally teach in my own shop, um, the there was a new the program out of UFV it was run out of the university so Paul didn't have any of like the admin um, coverage or anything like that any of the course planning you know he was the teachers show up and do the instruction and the university covered the rest so they ended up getting a new dean and the dean came in and said listen we are putting the price up of this program I forget what it was but I, I think it ended up being over five thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars much against Paul's wishes because um, there's definitely a ceiling of what I think is yeah. kind of reasonable even for a vocational course. Um, and there was that. So the, uh, the new dean put the price up and then they made some rules about registration. You know, if there weren't four people enrolled in the whatever section, they would bump it to the next section and the thing would get canceled. And it kind of, um, you know, I think, makes it a little bit unappealing to someone who's maybe booking or traveling in and taking time off work because there's all these other kind of logistical considerations to go over. Um, There was a little bit of red tape around the building as well. I can't remember if the school rented or owned it, but it was kind of this perfect storm of all this stuff. Uh, And then COVID hit at the beginning of 2020. So I think that was kind of the final nail in the coffin there. Um, And that was about when Paul decided to officially retire. He turned so um, he didn't want to teach out of, you know, he has quite a big shop out on his property, uh, but didn't want to teach out of his shop. And, you know, the school kind of killed the program a little bit. And as far as I knew at that point, there weren't any real uh, schooling options available within Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had chit-chatted with him about it a little bit. Um, and I had taught one or two people here and there uh, informally as people had asked, you know, people ask for brazing lessons or want to come by the shop or, you know, you hold a friend's hand through a frame build, but nothing super formal. Um, And it was kind of one of those things where it's like I was back at that little bit of a square one moment where it's like, all right, I have this previous experience. Now this is where my work has taken me. And now I'm in this unique position where, um, there's this opening available and I think also as being like a young female builder not seeing a lot of that reflected in um, teaching positions particularly in frame building so another one of those situations where it's like okay I'm not like I'm going to be a career teacher in this regard but um, you know the opportunity was there and I'm thankful now that I have the type of space available to me that I can have a couple of students. You know, I can't run a class with 10 students. I mean, first of all, it sounds chaotic. Um, (laughs) But my old shop in Toronto was 160 square feet, so not really conducive to having 
you know, even two adults working in a space. Um, I have the grand luxury of 300 square feet now. So uh, I can fit two whole other people in here with a reasonable amount of working room. Um, Yeah, and I just kind of put it out there. Again, I I taught a couple people like informally. And then I was like, all right, I'll make a schedule. And I'll say, I'm going to do this many classes and put it out there. And maybe people will sign up and maybe they won't. Um, And this year I've taught... I have two people coming next week and that'll round it out and I'll have had nine students this year. So it's been uh, interesting. That's excellent. Uh, That's also, it sounds like a really nice, you know, a class size, right? You want to take a class if, if there was, you know, 10 or 20 or more students would be outrageous. Mm -hmm. But I was in a class with, I was one of three students. That was a nice class size. I think UBI mm-hmm. was typically eight. And and for those who wow. haven't heard, I, I don't think UBI is doing frame building school anymore, which is sad, you know, because that was really like, a, that was where so many people who have been guests on this show and so many people in the North American, you know, handmade bike world, that's where they learned. But UBI isn't mm-hmm. doing school anymore. So but but anyway, in any rate, the the class size is a big deal. So to have only two students, I'm sure you get lots of you know like attention, and you really get to yeah get get a lot out of it. Yeah, and I think you know that's really important, especially like going through trade school. I've been in a welding shop where it's like 20 stalls of welders, and it's like you and one frazzled teacher running back and forth between stalls all day, you know, trying to get attention and trying to troubleshoot and trying to get people on track and keeping track of who's doing what and who's struggling with what. And like, there's all these layers of different things when you're, you know, dealing with that many people and students and, and tools. Um, And especially, you know, in a fairly precise thing like frame building is where things can go wrong very quickly, especially when we're working on, you know, we're working on nice, expensive frame tubing. So being able to just keep an eye on things, making sure that people are cutting the right end of a seat tube, stuff like that. It's a really nice balance of everyone gets a good amount of attention. There's not really, you know, I'm not a big school. I'm working out of my own personal shop. So there's not really any uh, tooling bottlenecks. Everybody can get through the jig at a comfortable pace. You're not rushing. Um, but it's also a nice balance of, you know, I don't like to hover, um, when I'm working, I don't like it when people hover, particularly if I'm learning something, um, and I know everyone learns differently, but I think it's like part of the process is, you know, um, instruction, demonstration, questions, clarification, and then you have this little bit of 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour of kind of doing it on your own and feeling it out and allowing people to figure that out. Um, I think like that's such a part of the process. Um, So having two students is this really nice balance of you set someone up on a task, you kind of go through that instruction demonstration clarification. Okay, good to go. And then you hop over to the next person and do that again with them, get them on the way. And by the time you've been through that, then you can go back to the first person. Okay, any struggles, any questions? How's it going? You know, a little bit of a, okay, try this. And then it's a really nice pace of going back and forth where there's not one too much downtime for me standing around doing nothing. I've taught one person at a time. And sometimes you're just like, you know, someone's doing a task and then you just kind of stand there looking busy for 20 minutes. Um, so it's a really nice pace. Um, 
and it's also like, you know, socially it's nice. People can kind of bounce off each other and say, oh yeah, I, I did this and then this is working and that looks cool. And it's a, it's a nice environment. So not too hectic, you know, frame building, even the basics going through one frame, starting from nothing in two weeks is a bit chaotic. Honestly, I sometimes don't understand how we even get there at the end and I'm the one teaching it, Mm -hmm. but it's nice to have that like, there's a lot to do and, you know, we have to stay on task and whatever, but to have that nice environment, because like you mentioned before, a lot of people, a lot of people are on vacation and they're taking time off and, and it's kind of, I've noticed maybe like a 50, 50 split of people come in and they're like, no, I just, it's experience. I just want to do this thing. I want to build a frame like bucket list type thing. And then there's people who are more interested from, um, I guess a business perspective of saying, yeah, this is something that I want to pursue further. Um, so allowing time to talk about either way of tooling or, you know, whatever direction people want to approach it from, I think is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think I kind of pushed you in the direction of talking more about the school and we should talk more about that, but I think I then kind of interrupted you from your story. So where you had told that you, um, you took your welding school and your machining school, and then you ended up going to Paul's class and, but what happened after that as you were, cause I know I followed you for a long time when you were living in what Toronto area and you were, you had that small mm-hmm. 160 square foot space. And I saw you build different bikes over the mm-hmm. years. What was that era like? And what were you, what were some things that you worked on then? Yeah. So I had uh, gone to USV at frame building 101 with Paul. And then I was back in Toronto. Um, I was working for a bag company at the time. Why not? cycles or they're called why not made now but it's kind of that like classic it's like a reload bag like classic messenger cordura bag apparel company nice um so i was uh working there at the time they were also they had this sister company called gallant cycles um which was a semi-custom i guess i'll call it they would bring in stock frames and then you could pick all your components and we had powder coating in the warehouse you could get everything powder coated we build up the frame for you um so i was in this interesting space where um in that relationship it was kind of discussed that i would start offering more custom options on those gallant bicycles you know either brazons or racks or like kind of small stuff um and we had quite a big warehouse i i couldn't tell you exactly but it's probably about five or 6,000 square feet. Um, So my original idea was that I would just start up in my, in this little corner of the warehouse um, and, you know, do brazons for, for this other company and small stuff just to kind of keep the skills fresh and then maybe do a frame here or there for for myself as desired. Um, That ended up not really happening. They kind of shut down that part of the, company um it didn't really take off i think as anticipated so they just kind of you know closed the lights on that um and around that same time i was in this position of i come from a fine art background and prior to all of the fabrication um i was always interested in this idea of having my own creative space and through different schooling that i've done um when I was a very young creative, I was really into doing like fabric and material design type stuff. And then in, in uh, my undergrad, 
I focused on photography. So it's kind of gone through these different transformations of a maker space or a photo gallery or, um, you know, a photo studio with a gallery in the front and my studio in the back and like all these kind of different formats. But it's always been this core idea of having my own creative space. Um, so around that time, you know, I was working in this warehouse and kind of not really doing what I wanted to be doing. And all right, why did I do all this effort of going back to trade school and acquiring all these skills and doing this frame building thing and like all of these things where I'm not really, I'm just showing up to this job and just doing whatever. And I'm not really kind of pushing that creative focus of mine, which has always been a driver for me. Um, so that's when I decided, uh, I actually went and learned from Koichi Yamaguchi as well in uh, Rifle, Colorado. And that was about the same time where it was like, okay, I'm going to take this leap of faith of I'm doing this job and I'm making whatever minor money doing what I don't want to do. So I had been looking around and I had found a reasonable space on the back of a friend's bike shop. And I was like, I'm just going to go and make minor money but at least be doing what I want to do creatively and have that kind of more fulfilling aspect. Um, and, you know, I can always do other stuff on the side. I worked in a bike shop, worked as a mechanic, worked as a messenger, whatever, um, worked as a welder in other shops, worked in architectural shops, but at least I will have, you know, my core creative focus will have this space to yeah. kind of do yeah. what I want and see where, where, it, where it takes me. Um, so I stopped working there, um, I went to take uh, Yamaguchi's course, uh, and the reason that I did that was Paul's course is kind of machine shop oriented, which is great. Um, you know, you do a lot of stuff on the mill and the lathe, and you're using more machine tools, where Koichi is more, you know, very traditional hand tool oriented. You're basically at um, a vice on a bench with like three or four files, and that's how you get through the whole process start to finish. So trying to be realistic about if I was going to pursue this further, what the approach that I was going to take, you know, I have 160 square feet. I got a bench, I got a vice and I have a bucket full of files and I don't have much more than that. So um, just kind of ensuring that within that limited capacity to start that I would be capable of doing it again. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also from a perspective, it had been about a year since I had done my, that initial course with Brody. And I think it's a sentiment that I think a lot of people who've done, you know, one frame building class can share is that you do the class, you feel good, you understand the process, you come up with a frame and then time goes by. And if you're not keeping those skills sharp, it's such a weird specific process. Uh, you know, you maybe arrive back at a bench one day with another frame tube set and you go, Oh, wait, what do I do? <laughs> um, yeah. So it was kind of around there. So I was like, all right, if this is something where um, I'm going to pursue this a little bit or have this as something that I want to continue building, I'm going to just go back, maybe double check that this is one, something that I still enjoy, still understand and can still accomplish with, um, you know, a smaller amount of tooling uh, and then go from there. So yeah, and then it just kind of started organically after that. I mean, being very involved in the Toronto bike community helps, obviously, like any bike community in, in any city is, you know, knowing people in shops and racing and riding bikes and um, that kind of community is like you get going on frame builds or repairs or whatever. Um, 
and I had never really, never again, never really intended to be like, I'm a frame builder, I just build bikes, whatever. I've always been interested in this idea of just having a space where I can make things. That's always been the driver for me. It has, um, you know, grown into being more bike oriented just because a lot of my base interests are bike oriented and therefore my community and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I'm happy to always, and I always have taken on other projects, other welding projects, other artistic projects, um, especially coming from a fine art background. I've always been very interested in uh, being this, with a fabrication sense, being this um, gap in knowledge for people who maybe come in and have a sculpture idea or some sort of creative idea, but they don't have that kind of fabrication space or ability or whatever to make the thing, make the object, make the item, um, and, and doing projects like that. I've done a handful of that with fine artists, which I find like very fun and creative and fulfilling. So yeah, the entire time it's really just being, seeing where things have taken me, seeing the opportunities that arise, trying out different stuff. Some things have stuck more than others. I mean, frame building has stuck more than others, which has been fun. Um, yeah. And just seeing where it's been taking me. Yeah. That transformation of, you know, taking some sort of school or something to where you have some technical experience and understanding, but then going from that space to actually starting to build your own little shop. And I've done that similarly, you know, living in a city, not have like some, some people just have, they own a house and they have a garage or a basement, mm -hmm. you know, which is, mm -hmm. must be nice. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. but anyway, for those of us who don't, even just to find some rinky dink little space and start to throw sp tools in it, or, or even if you did have your own garage, great. But like to, to then start to make it into a space that you can use is, I feel like that's, it's like a rite of passage or something. It's not easy to do that because it's expensive. Well, for space mm -hmm. and it's expensive for tools, but like, I don't know. It's just, it's like, I feel like it's fundamentally different when you, when you actually have the ability to do it yourself, because like, for instance, if you took like a ceramics class or something and you were able to do that like an hour a week, it's just, it's fundamentally different than if you actually have access and you can do it quite a bit more and, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do, it's, I don't know, it's, it's pretty special when like you then have the space and you can really like, and I think that's the dream anyway, is, is not just to have the skills, but then to be able to use them to do something that you care about and you need a space mm -hmm. to do that. Definitely. Yeah. And it's like, it's, I, I remember standing in that space when it was empty and looking at it and being like, Oh my God, I'm actually doing this. And in the grand scheme of things of shop spaces and people investing money in things, you know, for me, it was a lot of money. It was like, I had a little bit of money saved up and I spent it all on tools. It was gone really fast. <laughs> tools are expensive and there's always another one to buy. Yeah. Um, so it was this, a little bit of a leap of faith for me, but it's, I've always, the way I've always approached things is like, I try to look at things realistically, but I also look at things with a, a bit of like a, a why not perspective, right? Like I know that my, my driver in my life has always been this creative push. Um, and I've done the thing where I've worked a corporate job and, and whatever, and made decent money and had a, you know, um, salary and solid career and whatever. And it didn't work for me. And I, I didn't want to do it. And I was like, I'm, we only get one shot here and I'm not going to spend my time 
doing stuff that I don't want to do and doesn't creatively fulfill me. If I could shut my brain off and sit in an office and bang away on a computer all day, maybe I would, maybe my life would be a little bit easier, but it doesn't work for me. Uh, so I have to be realistic with myself about that. Um, so always just trying to see how I can work through things and keep that core idea of who I am creatively and that kind of work that is more fulfilling to me. Um, you know, obviously you have to be practical about it. It costs money to live. Getting a space set up is a risk, even a small space. You know, I had a um, cash handshake deal with a friend uh, back of a bike shop type thing. So in the grand scheme of what industrial space costs, it wasn't that much. But for me, you know, young person living in Toronto, paying apartment rent, also paying shop rent, yep. buying a bunch of tools to risk. Um, but yep. also, why not? Like, you, you got to see how it's going to go, right? And worst case, it doesn't work out. You can, um, you know, I had this kind of newly founded trade skills. Um, and I never was like, I'm, I'm not ever too proud to go and do other work if I have to. It's, I don't think, uh, I've had a lot of people ask me like questions about success in the past in interviews or whatever. And I think it's shifting a lot general, generationally, um, this definition of what success is, especially as an artist, especially as a creative, like, sure, being able to just do only what creative fulfills me and only put out that kind of work and have that pay all my bills and whatever that's of course the dream right as any sort of artist is you just make your art and people throw money at you great um sometimes that happens sometimes that doesn't happen you got to pay your rent every month regardless right Mm -hmm. so um having setting myself up in a manner where i can try and focus on sure that's the goal eventually right but in the meantime all right, I can, I'm happy to throw on a welding hood. I worked in a shop, an architectural shop, and I just stood there with a MIG gun and I banged out. We did like uh, steel glass clamps for, I, I don't even, even know, big buildings for big glazing projects. And I'd stand there at a booth and bang out 300 glass clamps a day. That's fine because then that paycheck enables me to go into my own creative space and then not have to take on those other those types of projects in my own space in order to pay the bills. Right. So, um, and I know definitely some people would look at that and say, Oh, you know, that's how can you say you're successful as an artist or creative when you got to go do these other jobs in order to do this. But I I don't know. It depends on how you look at it. Right. Um, Again, it's finding that balance. Like I can only do that for so long. I can put on that just like pure fabricator hat and show up and do a job and, and bang it out. Um, and there's been times where the ratio of that type of work is much higher than like just that core creative type of work that I want to do. Uh, but you know, we're 2022, like a head of lettuce costs $9. Like mm-hmm. it is what it is. Right. So being realistic about that, living that creative life and doing those creative fulfillments when, you know, cost money, cost money to live. So I don't know. It's always been this like back and forth. I obviously would like to keep it, you know, that ratio flips to um, all always like my creative tenets leading the way. But I know that that's not always realistic. Um, you got to pay to play. So yeah. always kind of it's, and I think, you know, that's not a unique position to be in. I'm sure you can relate to that. A lot of young brain builders, a lot of I have a lot of other 
artistic friends. And I think almost everybody relates to that. So um, yeah. I think the, the interesting shift generation, generationally is that people are now more willing to have those conversations and be open about that um, as opposed to, you know, this kind of like tortured, starving artist trope that has been the traditional thing of or it's like all right well this person is this artist but they have to they do all these other jobs on the side or it's like you know they have their nine to five and then they got their five to nine or whatever where now I think with our generation it's just like more it just is what it is and people make it work and I don't think it's this uh, definition of success or failure or whatever it's just uh you know how we live and how we approach things right yeah yeah, frame building is a really tough business, and that was something somebody had suggested as a discussion more on this podcast, or people ask for that generally. It's just like, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, <laughs> tell the truth, right? Like, all your guests of this podcast, like, where are they really making their money? It's a tough business to, to, uh, to do it, and I think to some degree, for those of us who have some sort of brand in this industry, you know, maybe a frame builder... Um, there's an element where, you know, maybe it feels like if you present an image of success and there's all this apparent social proof because you're so busy selling your frames and you can't even keep up, then, well, it must be a valuable product or something. I think sometimes people feel like this need mm-hmm. to project that they're so busy and they're so in demand and that that would breed further mm-hmm. success. And so, you know, maybe some people aren't completely honest about the fact that they have a day job or that they have a unique uh, position because they're, you know, a stay at home parent and their spouse is like really uh, got an awesome gig and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, like, I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of. It's a miracle when people can work full time as a frame builder and have like a reasonable quality of life and work life balance. And like, it is oh, stupendously yeah, challenging. There's a small number of people who do it and my hat's off to them. Yeah, it takes a long time to get there, too. Um, it really does. Like, I've been frame building for nine years, which is wild to me. Um, and it's taken me this long to feel like fairly confident on a regular basis in my skills and like, you know, have that part of that business perspective of it down, um, you know, and that's that whole kind of projection thing that you're talking about that it's definitely really interesting. That's a whole other thing into the mix of like the whole Instagram and social media following and putting yourself there out there as a brand is like, I've, had to brand myself for you know because you kind of have to it's a little bit of this catch-22 any sort of artist will fine artist tells you the same it's like the brand is just you but you have to kind of package it in some sense to um you got to show people you got to put it out there in order to get the work come in especially in this kind of instagram world that we live in now which even when i started building was like just starting a little bit um so it's a bit of a catch-22, and I think definitely, yeah, it's, um, and I've started to talk about this more and more recently, especially with having students and people who are totally green come into my space and ask a lot of those questions, um, is it's one of those things that gets romanticized a lot, um, mm-hmm. and you only see, you one, you only see the fun stuff, or two, you only see the successful stuff, Um or, yeah, it's easy to say, you know, you got an Instagram account with however many followers and we're booking 
this, you know, 10 years out for our wait list and whatever, whatever. Um, so I think it's just this, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Um, and it's one of those things where, again, I think it's getting better now. There's this, you know, shift to digital and YouTube and there's younger and younger people coming into the craft, but it's less like other trades where there's more, you know, documented approaches and textbooks and formal classes and and stuff like that, where you're like, Oh, I'm interested in welding and this kind of stuff where it's like, it's almost easier to get into. Um, even though as a whole, like there's, I think there's more technical there than just like just in one core of frame building. Um, but in terms of accessibility and maybe a bit of gatekeeping and, um, knowledge being available and, the realities of it where I think a lot of people are not super willing to talk about um, has been really interesting now to be in this position where people are starting to ask me those questions where it's taken me this long to even only start to figure out the answers to all of those things. And like half the time, I don't know, I'm just figuring it out as I go along, right? Any young person running a business or, or being self-employed or that kind of thing is there's a lot of stuff I have, dialed in now after years and years of kind of doing the same stuff and figuring it out and trial and error. But there's also a lot of stuff where it's like, Oh, I don't, don't ask. I'm not a business. Like, don't look at me. I'm just a person in a room making stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's kind of funny to see that perspective or like how people view you from maybe seeing you only through that lens through Instagram or whatever. Um, I think it's always kind of funny because to me, I'm still just this like kid from art school who's just like making stuff and figuring it out as I go along. Um, so it's, it's funny when, as you know, now having done this, I guess for, for this many years, people look at me and say, Oh, you know, like how running the business or doing this or whatever. And it's like, I can tell you my experience and I can tell you what works for me. Um, you know, but I try to be really realistic with people and say, but you got to figure it out. A lot of it is just figuring it out. Um, there's definitely more resources now, I think, for for small businesses and small creative businesses in terms of like that business perspective, mm-hmm. um, especially even versus five, six years ago. I think the shift to younger people um, and more people generally being self-employed because those like, you know, those golden employment opportunities are less and less now. So I think a lot of more people are saying I can say make the same amount of minor ducats but at least be doing what I want to do or set myself up at home or you know be able to child care while I'm also working and like those all those kind of like living situations as people figure it out so as that shifts again generationally I think there's more and more resources and open discussion and um, you know things like that for people doing small business and being self-employed and like you know, having all those similar issues and problems and roadmaps and whatever and figuring it out together. So it's yeah. been interesting to see, but it's also now interesting to be kind of on the other, other. Yeah. I mean, not the other side of it, because I'm still doing it day to day, but have people now coming. People to me, asking for um, your advice. Square one and, and asking for that advice. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a interesting roller coaster for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a trip when you feel like, I mean, I'm not projecting onto you, but from my own experience anyway, it's a trip to like feel like you're a newcomer and you don't know what you're doing and then to slowly watch as like people start to pay more attention to you and see you as mm-hmm. some degree of an authority or that like, you, you know, it's it's kind of funny uh, 
as that trans yeah, transformation it, happens. It it's interesting, and like I, you know, I I can't remember when we started following each other on Instagram, but I remember you at a tiny shop in oh, yeah. New York State, right? And yeah. like the tiny plywood shop, which was probably maybe was smaller than my shop. Um, that was like three hundred sixty square feet. Oh, okay. So that's, you know, that was bigger than my shop, but that same kind of, um, you know, progression of you're working in another shop, but you have your own space and you're doing creative stuff. And all right, you find that out this little way to, um, you know, make tooling or make whatever and, and be able to shift that ratio again of doing more what you want to do. But, you know, you can't leave that safety net of this job because you got to figure out all this other business stuff first and it takes a long time to get there. And it's this like transition period. And especially, you know, I, I grew up fairly poor, so I never had any sort of like family. There's no family money here. Like, uh-huh. um, my mom always tells me, she said, sorry, you weren't born rich, but, uh, maybe next life. Um, <laughs> and I've definitely seen not to, and like not to hate on anyone who comes from money and is, is, is able yeah. to set up a shop space with no, no problem. But, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen that approach from people who come from a very different background. Um, and mm-hmm. in order to do that without any sort of safety net, it's scary. It takes a long time and you got to make sure that if it, if it doesn't work out, you can pay your bills and figure it out. So um, that, that does take a long time, but there is a point where if you want to do it, you've got to do it. Nobody else is going to do it for you. And you have to take a leap of faith however big or small, whether it be, I'm going to go take that one frame building class and do that. And that's my little bit of leap of faith and then figure it out from there. Or, you know, you have your whatever technical background and this idea of creative thing that you want to do. And you've got to go find that little shop space. And even if you do it part-time, five to nine, whatever, figuring that out. And it's different for everybody. um, But I think there's definitely... You know, I, I, I even see similarities between my story and your story of like different paths, but that kind of same tone of, you know, you're in this area where it's like, all right, I want to get there. How do I get there? You start small, you have your job or whatever on the side. And then once you start figuring those things out, it gets a little bit easier, gets a little bit more streamlined. And then you can take that leap of faith again and say, all right, I'm going to quit that other job and then I'm going to do this again. Yeah. And you just kind of keep compounding it and see where it takes you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think part of my secret too was that I was in New York state, but I was in Syracuse, New York, which is not a destination. And it, I mean, I'm not trying to talk crap about this city I lived in for seven years, but it was very affordable. And I would live in apartments mm-hmm. with my friends and I would sniff out these crappy little shop deals. No offense to the landlords that I had, but like they weren't <laughs> special and they weren't that expensive. And and I just had, I was, I, I still am such a cheapskate, but I, like I really engineered my life for cheapness. And that was my superpower mm-hmm. was that like, so I never had much of like full-time job experiences because I had engineered my life to be so affordable that like I could afford mm-hmm. to spend a disproportionate amount of my time in this little shop. And then I delivered sub sandwiches on my bike or worked at a bike shop or, you know, I worked in a machine shop a little bit or different things that I would do. But like the, the whole, the whole objective was just minimizing the amount of time I had to like give to somebody else every week so that I could still mm-hmm. cover my costs. Mm-hmm. 
and whatever. But, you know, it's hard when you, a lot of people don't want to do that or they can't do that because of family or different reasons or they have other things like student Mm -hmm. debt or children or whatever that keep their lives more expensive. And so it can be really hard to, to carve out that time and that space for yourself, for personal development and growth. And it's not Mm -hmm. easy. And definitely it's like, it's one of those things where it's like only, only you can decide, right? You, you have to take a look and see what your priorities are. And, um, you know, I was in this space where, and I, and I, again, I always go back to this thing, but it's been this driver throughout my entire life of, you know, it, my life would probably be a lot easier if I wasn't a weird artist and I didn't have to make it, <laughs> but here we are. Um, you know, it's one of those things that it's like, if that's, if that's who you are, um, and you know that you need you need to do this, um, then you figure it out. And that has always been a priority for me. And I've been in different positions in my life where you just work a job or you just do whatever and you kind of get away from whatever that core driver is. And I can do that for a time, but there also is a limit for me. Um, and I think that just comes as being, you know, self-aware, right? Um, and then making that making that my priority and my driver. That's not without sacrifice though, because there has been a lot of time where I worked full time while having my own shop space. So I would go, you know, I worked full time as a messenger um, for a legal company. So it was nine to five. I'd ride in, leave my house at eight o'clock, ride downtown, ride in the core all day, and then ride half an hour to my shop at five o'clock, sit down and eat something, sit down on the couch for five minutes, shoot the shit with my friends, and then work from six until whenever, depending on what I, excuse me, depending on whatever I had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with working in other welding shops or working in a bike shop or, or doing whatever in order to kind of keep that dream alive. Um, and it's sometimes it's not fun. Sometimes it's a slog. Um, and you can definitely, you know, if you're working seven days a week from 8 a.m. till 10 p.m., there's a limit on that, um, yeah. you know, burning the candle at both ends type of thing. There's a social sacrifice. Yep. Um, you know, uh, any self-employed person can tell you that the best thing about being self-employed is that every day can be Saturday, but also every day can be Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially if you're not really in a position to delegate stuff um, like, any of the admin or, you know, paying for admin or paying for an assistant or, or shop hands or any of that type of stuff. You know, I've never had an employee. I've had one or two people come and work for me, um, you know, between welding school, someone wanted to come in and work for me and they volunteered their time and that was cool. But, you know, I'm, I'm the one doing it. It's just me. So if I'm not doing it, it's not getting done. Um, and like any small business or self-employed person can tell you, there's always things to be done. It's always um, more. So it's finding that always more and finding that balance. And, you know, there's some sort of sacrifice. You're either covering your costs with another job, but then you lose that time, you know, you sacrificing your social or whatever. So it's the classic uh, pick two, you know, triangle. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's, you know, it's time, money, uh, social, whatever you want to fill in the blanks yeah. with. But you know, as, as we figure it out and hopefully become more successful and more dialed in whatever, you know, you, you, you figure it out, but there's always up and downs and, you yeah. know, you just have to see where it takes you. Right. Yeah. W- one thing I want to hit on <clears throat> is this idea of frame building education, um, 
how do I want to say this? I'm really enthusiastic about frame building education because uh, I've thought about this and sometimes I feel like I, I want to be careful how I talk about frame building on this podcast and other places. I don't want to give people the false impression that like it is a good business opportunity because for sure there are some people making money in frame building and mm-hmm. and it's kind of a miracle. I think most of those people who have done that if they applied that same focus and drive and effort and, and everything into, you know, a, a lot of other industries, it might take them even further, right? Like if they took their, their mm-hmm. manufacturing skills and they applied them in aerospace where the customers actually have a lot of money and a lot of demand or whatever it is, mm-hmm. that might go further. On the other hand, it might not be as rewarding or fulfilling. And there are some people who really do hit home runs in this business. So like, I don't want to be too discouraging. I just want to be realistic with people because I think the the worst is when I see folks who they put a lot of time and energy into this and they really, they really mm-hmm. work hard and, and they start to get jaded. And then it's only after five, 10, 15, 20 years, then they start to realize that like they've made a terrible mistake or something. And so, but what I do think is exceptionally cool about bike frame building as education and courses and as a hobby, or, or even if you do it for a while and you get frustrated and you take that experience somewhere else, cause let's face it, it is tough to like to create mm-hmm. to create a compelling amount of value that you can sell regularly to people at a price that you would need to like that is really hard and mm-hmm. but what is i think mm-hmm. exceptional about it is that the things that you will learn are so valuable and f- for me anyway i mean that's my experience like i'm doing something that's adjacent to frame building now and i think it's a great opportunity i know a lot of people who did frame building for a while and it got them fired up about something and they they took a job somewhere else so they went into a different industry or they started a different sort of business or or whatever it is like uh, and i think about let's say young people like high schoolers and college students who have no desire to directly, you know, like actually make a business that principally does frame building, but there's like so much that you can teach and share and learn through learning how to build a bike. You know, there's some engineering, there's Mm -hmm. some design, there's business components, there's seeing something come together, you know, like you could make a little, I don't know, you could make a little widget in your welding class, but like you can't ride it down the street, like the full circle of like taking something from design to finished product Mm -hmm. that that like bike frame building offers people I think is remarkable and it's like really exhilarating and also like a lot of young people like bicycles and so I'm just really what bullish I'm like really enthusiastic about frame building for like it's like education and frame building Mm -hmm. no I agree I think it is just really and I think that's kind of what drew me in initially and I think what I try and keep now as my main driver in doing this is that it's such a unique um, craft that one without, you know, even coming from a trades background, I, I struggle to, you know, think of where else you would learn some of these specific, you know, brazing and stuff like this. Maybe if you went to school for plumbing, like I went through welding school and you might, depending on where you go, you might learn some oxy fuel cutting, like, but they're probably not going to teach you brazing. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, it's, it's, uh, uh, to, to have to go into such a deep dive on a really specific technical skill that really isn't readily available elsewhere, but that whole encompass encompassing 
um, journey that you talked about of going from this, you know, uh, design through to finished product, like that in and of itself, that's a whole like industrial design or engineering type of um, uh, education or, or, you know, skill set that you can learn. Uh, but then there's also this creative portion of it and this sculptural portion of it and this problem-solving technical portion of it. So it's just this, like, really interesting intersection of all of these different, um, you know, different parts of trade and different parts of craft and different parts of artisan um, that I think is, where where do you find this in, in other types of things unless you're, like, a fine artist, Right. Um, so I find it to be a very interesting intersection of all of those things. And as you mentioned, it being like a jumping off point for other types of stuff. Um, like I had one student come in and they had never done any sort of brazing or anything, um, but came from an engineering background and was, I think was more interested in the, in a artisan, like fine art perspective. Um, and they were like immediately enthused with the brazing and all of the sculptural possibilities with it like we were doing uh just like the brazing stacks where you know just do a little stack of dimes just to get that kind of um like motor control developed of like the basics of brazing and they were over there on their tube like building little sculptures and figuring it out and like not at all doing the task at hand but just like way off like already in like day one being like wow this is what i can do with this is like so incredible so um it's really cool to see everybody's different perspective of it. Um, and I agree, like in this, in this education um, kind of portion of it is like, it is this, its own weird niche where like maybe in and of itself, if you just like slap frame building on your resume, people might look at it and be like, what's that? How's that applicable? Mm-hmm. But if you really break it down of like all of the different skills involved, all of the different fabrication, depending on how, like, you know, there's a million different ways to approach it now. Like I have my, my process fairly streamlined after this many years and it's evolved and changed and whatever, as I've gotten more space and more tooling and more, you know, understanding and whatever, but um, there are so many different spins you can take on it. And then, you know, applying those like really specific and high level fabrication skills, like in order to make a functional bicycle, it's gotta be pretty dialed. Like we're dealing with, I mean, I guess it depends on the perspective you come from. Like, we're not dealing in microns, sure, but, like, you, everything still has to be pretty bang on in order for it to be functional, right? So, yeah. um, and in terms of, like, documenting that information, you know, having that information readily available, it's not like there's a trade school for, for frame building, you know, Um if anything, maybe UBI was the closest thing to it of the most formal consistent, long-running, whatever program, but it's mostly offered on this kind of one-on-one basis type of thing of all of these different perspectives from a, from a craftsperson, from an artisan, or, you know, some sort of fabricator, like one, one person's perspective. So it's a, a whole different world of education and learning and, um, you know, seeing where it can take you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's just really special, and um, I don't know how to articulate that best. But I'm glad that you're making. I'm glad that you're making the the courses available to people. You know, in Canada, I know I actually sell mm-hmm. a fair amount of stuff these days to people in BC, which is mm-hmm. so almost 
bewildering to me. Yeah, no, I well, I want to get out to BC anyway, but man, uh, it's like a disproportionate. I feel like a disproportionate amount of my sales in North America, period, (laughs) are are to BC these days. But yeah, um, but certainly to the west coast of North America. But anyway, um, Mm -hmm. no, it's great because I know like the exchange rate and the duties and the complications of the border through COVID and all that. Like to have. To have a, a course in Canada is a big deal to a lot of people and also, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, for all the reasons. I wanted to talk to you about the bike that you brought to the Philly Bike Expo was really cool mm-hmm. because you, well, you can tell it yourself, but like the Damascus element of it, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I... this is one of those things it's like there's always people want to know what started it and it's kind of always the same story with me where it's like I don't know I had an idea and I thought it was kind of neat so then I thought about it a bunch um and figured it out like that's really just kind of how it started I had seen uh on Instagram you know there's this whole knife maker community there's absolutely beautiful demonstrations of Damascus steel and welding and fabricating um, I've watched a lot of forged and fire, <laughs> um, but it's just, this, it's always been from an artisan and a fabricator perspective, very interesting to me. Um, but it's, it's one of those things and it's kind of funny thinking about it now, like as a frame builder and I can, you know, call myself a frame builder and I have all this tooling and I'm in this space and I can just like go into a room and make a frame, um, where some people might look at that and be like, oh, how do I get there of me being in this space, looking at the forging and being like, oh, how do I get there? Mm-hmm. So it like almost brought me back to that, like really starting point of it, of having this like creative idea in my head and being like, all right, um, you know, I've seen it used in um, decorative applications on frames before. Um, I think there have been a handful of instances of people at a NABS or in previous shows doing foraging or maybe some sort of Damascus um but it's not super common um I mean now now going through the entire process I understand why it's a lot of work um (laughs) but also functionally and from that you know think about that you know that kind of accessibility and uh, tooling conversation we had about frame building and then throw a whole other layer on it like I can't have foraging tooling in my own shop so um yeah, it was just like I thought about it and um, I thought it was very interesting. Um, I wanted to see how far I could take it um, in kind of a frame building perspective. Um, I've always been interested in the idea of pushing my own boundaries as a frame builder and a fabricator. Like I, I like to acquire new skills and learn new things and, you know, my driver as a fabricator is always to have more skills available to me as an artist. Um, So I thought that this could be a cool new addition for me and be able to open up all these other creative possibilities for me further in my own work. So, um, you know, I approached it kind of, kind of the same of my initial approach to frame building being like, all right, I think I have enough, you know, I have, over a decade of metalworking experience under my belt at this point. So I'm not totally green. I've never done any forging before, but all right, I understand in theory 
obviously there's a lot of nuance and finesse there. It's like people, you know, a, a general fabricator looking at frame building and be like, all right, I understand in theory, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of nuance and stuff there that, that you need in order to be successful at it. But yeah, there was nothing in kind of rolling through the general idea of how I thought it would work in my brain where, that I got super hung up on. Um, you know, I was like, all right, I can kind of mentally work my way through this whole process. And there's nothing that like beyond, all right, okay, I've never actually done forging, but in the theory, I can kind of work myself through the basics. So to me that says, all right, you know, I am capable enough to go and learn this thing. Right. Um, so I looked around, there was, um, there is a, a traditional German Canadian black smithing school about three hours away from me uh, and they do more formal traditional blacksmithing courses so I had originally looked at that um, but actually through the through the power of Instagram um, I stumbled upon a blacksmith that is about 20 minutes away from me um, and funny enough it was before probably about this time last year because it was before the holidays and I saw a sponsored Instagram post and it was these really beautifully ornate like fire pokers mm -hmm. um, handcrafted forged like with the twist in them and everything and I was like oh that's really cool clicked on them um, you know clicking around and I realized that this blacksmith lived you know he lives just outside of my town and he was like selling them at the local market kind of doing the, you know that pre-Christmas type thing yep. um, so uh, I sent him a message and I was like hey uh, I live in town. I'm a welder. I make bikes. Here's the deal. Um, I'm interested in learning. I have this idea for one specific project. I'm interested in learning how to forge. Um, you know, w would you be willing to give me some lessons or teach me or, or whatever? Like, obviously, I'll, you know, I'll pay for your time. Um, and he messaged me back right away and he said, yeah. Um, you know, actually, he had been meaning to message me. He had seen me on Instagram oh, wow. and realized that I, I was a welder in town and was going to reach out to me about doing some work for him as a welder. So it kind of was like this weird, you know, it worked out. Um, That's great. He, uh, he's, he's a second generation blacksmith. Uh, he's EG Ironworks on Instagram. Very skilled. Uh, his father was a blacksmith. He's a blacksmith. So, you know, decades of experience. Um, and he does mostly very big architectural type stuff for, um, you know, cabins and homes and, and that kind of stuff. But I think also comes from this kind of like artisan creative background. So I think for him, this was also this like kind of fun creative opportunity, you know, this break from doing all of like the regular, mm -hmm. you know, at, even as an artisan, the day-to-day -day business stuff to take the opportunity um, to, to teach me how to forge. So uh, we, yeah, I figured it out. I went, I drove up there. It's, it's literally 20 minutes from me, which is great. Much better, uh, much better setup than three hours away from me. Yeah. Um, and chit chatted, beautiful shop, probably two, 3000 square feet, tons of giant forging tooling. You've got a propane forge. You've got a coal forge, all of the, you know, all the toys in the forging world. Um, and same thing. I kind of, explained to him what I wanted to do. I talked through the process a little bit. And that was another bit of an indicator to me is like, all right, I'm talking to this other 
um, professional metalsmith, blacksmith, you know, fabricator kind of bullet point talk through the process. And there was no point in talking that out where he was like, I don't know, or like, oh, no, no, that's not going to work. Or, you know, you think this is going to happen, but have you thought about this? So he kind of like, oh, okay, you know, yeah, all right, that seems like that's going to work and whatever, like, you know, kind of talked it through. Um, so that was, that was when I was like, all right, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's see if it works. And honestly, for if no other reason than just to see if I can do it, just to create the thing, um, kind of putting myself back in that space of, um, letting that creative artisan part of me be in the driver's seat, like fully and completely, um, as opposed to being in this space of being a fabricator as a business and having to, you know, work on a, like, I love working on customer bikes, but it's, you know, the customer is the driver or typically whatever the trending bike style, cough, cough, gravel uh-huh. is the driver <laughs> of whatever you're building. Right. So, um, I had decided I wanted to go come back to Philly I hadn't been since 2019. So in that time frame, I think I had, I can't remember when, when they sent out the registration, but I had already registered and I was like, all right, I'm going to go to Philly. I want to make something. I don't want to just kind of put a, you know, throw another gravel bike on the table or, you know, I want to lead with, I want to lead with the creative and I want to take this opportunity to put myself back in that creative driver's seat and just do it for the sake of doing it for the sake of creating, putting yourself in that space of going from that ideation all the way through to the creation of it. Um, Because even as someone who's doing that mostly as a job, there's still a lot of times you can get stuck in that autopilot or, you know, that function of you're building stuff that pays the bills, not necessarily that true creative driver all the time. So, um, what opportunity is better than going to, you know, this kind of handmade bike show to put something on the table that's like you through and through creatively, right? Or just doing something to see if you can do it or for the whole sake of like, it's almost like, you know, it's not about the destination type thing. This whole thing for me was really just about about the journey of it, of putting myself back in that learning space, putting myself back in that like complete creative space, um, figuring it out, problem solving, having this kind of vision in my brain of what I wanted it to be. And like the only focus is really seeing if I can arrive there with no other um, outside influence, let's say. Um, So that was kind of the whole driver of it. Um, It it worked out uh, quite honestly for probably I'd say maybe 70% of the process. I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. Uh, it seems like it's working, but I'm not sure. Um, and so a lot of the, for the folks who haven't seen the bike, just to clue them in, it's like a track bike that you built a frame and a fork. And mm-hmm. it's a normal tube set for the most part, except that the lugs and the dropouts and some different fittings are the forged layered, beautiful Damascus, like the exposed. Right. And then. Mm-hmm. And then TIG welded together for the lugs. You smashed them out and rolled them and formed them and cut them and dropouts mm-hmm. similarly. And right, that's the, uh, the the main gist of the bike. Yeah, that's the gist. So the the forged the forged lugs, the dropouts, the fork dropouts, 
um, yeah, I uh, basically wanted to do Damascus just out of a, I mean, could have made it easy on myself, I guess, and just done regular forging. Not that that's easy by, you know, mm-hmm. by any means, but I was really interested in this Damascus perspective. And I, I know that from, uh, you know, if some 20 year knife maker looks at my Damascus, it's, it's basic Damascus. I understand that. But um, again, it's that seeing if I can, seeing if I can do it, acquiring a new skill, kind of pushing myself to that next level having this fabrication skill, it's almost like it's, a, it's, it's, uh, I look at this bike as like a proof of concept or like a prototype for my own, um, artistic possibility or creative possibility, because now in being through the whole process, having a better understanding of the process, what's realistic, how things work, arriving from, uh, you know, a billet into a lug, which they're, is no real roadmap to do mm-hmm. um, now as a, as a creative being able to look at it and say, okay, this is how I could potentially incorporate this into my creative work moving forward. Um, yeah. So it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, you, you look at it and you work through the process and there was, there was no point in this entire process where there was any sort of autopilot or disengagement from, yeah. from me um, of being, you know, fully, uh, fully present and fully engaged, like pretty much to a hundred percent of my own um, creative and fabrication capacity. Honestly, um, that's exciting. There was a lot of problem solving. It is, it really is. And like, I, I, I did this to myself. Um, there were definitely a couple of ups and downs. But again, it's like in your day to day, and especially as you, I guess, get more successful or more busy or whatever, you can lose, you can lose that part of the process. Um, and again, it gets, it's, it's personal preference or everybody's journey is different, right? But I know for me, like that, that little nugget or that little part of it is the most exciting. Like the creating part of it mm-hmm. for me as an artist has always been the coolest and the funnest and the most engaging part. And you don't always get to do that. Like just uh, with unbridled enthusiasm at all times in your, in your day job. Right. Yeah. Um, like I remember you, you posted something on Instagram recently where you were like making stuff for the shop, which is not your day job now. And you're like, oh, man, this is so fun. Like, mm-hmm. you forget sometimes when you just, like, get to throw yourself into, like, I don't know, just making stuff for the sake of making stuff, right? Yep. So um, that, it, it sounds kind of funny to just say it out loud of, like, oh, I was just making it just because I wanted to make it. But, like, yep. that's the whole point, isn't it? That's yeah. the whole point of all of this. And I think if you talk to most fabricators or frame builders or whatever, any sort of artisan type person, I think most of us, if we could get away with not having to do the business part of it or the whatever, you know, that's the driver for a lot of people. So um, it was a really fun process for me. And I was just like, so totally creatively engaged the whole time. Um, And, and from a fabrication perspective, uh, I mean, forging is, so cool man yeah, honestly certainly like, looks like I, it. it's one of those th- it, it it really is it's one of those things that it's like and it's kind of funny now it's like i was also teaching 
uh, I've been working on this since like April of this year. Um, so I've been teaching people basic frame building as I've been learning basic forging and to be like this kind of like dichotomy of like, okay, being a little bit more of an established frame builder and competent and comfortable in this skill in order to be able to communicate it or whatever. And like watching people go through that process from, you know, various like skill levels, either completely green or some sort of fabrication and coming in and working through that process. And at the same time, myself being back at that, like basically exact same point in time, but now with forging mm-hmm. um, was really interesting like I kind of you know looked at it objectively a little bit and I was like this is kind of a funny space to be in of like being back in this thing of like being completely new there was actually one uh one of my classes uh it was in September and I was like right in the thick of like finishing all my billets um and all my prep material for Philly um and, you know, we finished class at 4.30 and then I got in the car and drove up to the blacksmith and spent the evening there, like hammering out the rest of my billets. So, um, awesome. and I was showing my students, I was like, I came, I showed, um, I had re-welded, um, I had been there up there a few times and had welded a bunch of, forge welded a bunch of stacks and um, in Damascus. So you take alternating um, alloys of steel or stainless or whatever your base material is and however um, you stack them or pattern them or, you know, put them together forms that kind of end pattern that you end up with. And you can do that. The possibilities really are infinite is, you know, people make 500, 1000 layered about you type into masses on YouTube and there's all sorts of, mm-hmm. you know, wild different patterns you can do. So um, yeah. I started with about a dozen uh, a dozen layers of different materials and then welded, forged them out into a long bar, cut the bar, brought it back to my own shop, machined down all the sides because when you restack and re-weld, you know, you got to get all that scale off. It's got to be clean. It's got to be in order mm-hmm. to get a good forge weld. Um, so did a bunch of machining, cleaning, whatever, restacked them, re-welded it uh, because now instead of, let's say, you know, multiplied by four it's like you just keep multiplying those layers and layers and layers so um in the same time frame that i was teaching some students frame building at the beginning of the week i showed them i was like oh here's my you know welded stack of layers one night after class ran up to the blacksmith got it in the forgery welded it drew it out um and then brought it back in the next day now it's a new it's its own billet again so just seeing that process or kind of having that interest, being in that interesting space of being a teacher, but also being a student at the same yeah, time. It's really like liter- know, kind of literally funny and, funny and interesting. Yeah. At the same time. Um, and uh, then also being back in the space of it's like, Oh man, now I'm, I'm working nine to five. And then I'm back to doing this thing in the evening of like running out the door at 5 mm-hmm. PM to go work in another creative space till, you know, 10 o'clock at night. But um no, it was really, it was really, really fun. Um, and just to see that understanding that, understanding the process in theory, um, I think probably again, like how a lot of people look at frame building if they're not in it, you're like, oh, I understand it in theory. But then to go through the whole process of like, okay, I understand that I'm going to stack some steel and I'm going to put it in a furnace and then I'm going to squish it and it's going to become a billet. But when you see it happen, you're like, man, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. Like, this is so cool. So 
Um, I had a really fun time the whole time doing it. Um, and Eric, the name of the blacksmith, he's like so skilled and so knowledgeable. And, um, you know, again, to have that kind of like mentorship available to me has been really cool. That's um, terrific. And that kind of like professional relationship we're actually going to do. I'm going to go up there, I think, next month and we're going to weld up. He has a really big uh, architectural project. So we're going to work on like a big railing together or a staircase together. I'm not quite sure nice. what it is, but like that would be cool. Yeah. So it's been a really fun process the whole way. I wanted to say, I think um, that, you know, literal example of being a teacher and a student at the same time. But, you know, that's a good metaphor, too, for I think that's the right approach to life is to like, mm -hmm. figuratively speaking, to have like one foot planted on solid ground of the things that you know and are familiar and comfortable and confident in and mm -hmm. and to have the other foot flagellating in, in the unknown, in, in, the, in the water or yeah. whatever. And they're both yeah. important and like, it's always trying to maintain that balance because if you're too comfortable, then you're missing the adventure of life. And, and if, if you're, if you're just flagellating, then you lose control and you probably die, you know, exactly. <laughs> like, things go badly. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fine line, but boy, do I love to walk it. <laughs> um, and I think, and you know, that's also why I love the frame builder community so much and why I love going to shows, especially like Philly so much. Um, is like having that conversation with people who share that sentiment and like are in it kind of with you, um, you know, in all different kind of shapes and sizes and perspectives and whatever. But um, I think, you know, this is very much like, unless you're working for a bigger bike company, um, you're as a frame builder, probably mostly working alone, like, most of the time I'm, I'm working alone. Um, honestly, yeah. having students in here has been really cool because I, I hang out with, you know, other people working in the shop all day, which is not kind of my regular. Um, so in, <clears throat> in order to have those, you don't have like coworkers or colleagues most of the time in that sense that you can like either one commiserate with or, you know, problem solve with, or even just kind of like bounce ideas off, um, Instagram is a, a cool tool for that in, in some regard. Like there's this really cool little frame builder community on Instagram where, you know, there's a bunch of builders I message back and forth with. And, you know, there's people who share their work and, you know, share their problem solving and whatever. But there's something to be said for being actually being in a room full of people who all do the same thing as you mm -hmm. um, and really get to, you know, look at each other's work and talk about it and see what different people are doing and have those conversations in person. Because, um, again, um, unless you're really working in some sort of big industry sector, it's not something that you really get to do all the time. So, yeah, um, yeah Philly is such a great, great little community and like such a nice concentration of getting a lot of like, I call them like all, all my friends that live in my phone are, are all in one room. <laughs> That's um, funny and get to, you know, talk to everybody and see what everybody's doing and like get feedback from people and, and, you know, that kind of stuff is really cool and fun. So, yeah. Oh, another thing I wanted to say is I just thought it was really cool that the bike that you brought to Philly was not only was it like the proof of concept that like you could actually 
you know, go to a blacksmith shop and you could create these Damascus billets and you could turn them into a log or something. And it's like, okay, that's a cute idea. Yeah, I guess you could do that. No, it's like you actually built the whole bike and this was like the proof of concept. But like you, I feel like it's different to say like, wouldn't it be funny if, and then somebody says some joke of an idea and it's like, it'd probably be a lot funnier if you (laughs) actually did it though. Right. And so anyway, I feel like there's a difference between having the idea or like proving out that you could make a single lug, but like, it wasn't just a lug. You had, you had the lugs and you had the fork crown and the dropouts and the stay bridge. And Mm -hmm. uh, there might've been more, but it was a lot of pieces in there and it was like the whole bike. Uh, And so, yeah, yeah, no. And then like, it's, it's gotta be functional. Right. And like the, the bike is functional. It's rideable. It's, It's a functional bicycle. And I had no intent of making something that was just for show. Um, yeah. you know, there's definitely already been some commentary on, um, whether it works or whether it's a good idea or whether, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, uh-huh. but that's also this interesting conversation of some, maybe a generational divide as well as like some more traditional people who are rooted in how things are, are not so interested in how things can be. Um, yeah. And I think that's a really interesting space, especially now with even like there's a lot of builders that are younger than me coming in, yeah. making businesses and making bikes and whatever. And like watching how something is shifting and growing and whatever. And it's like just because just because something has been done in one way for so long doesn't mean that there it can't be done in another way. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, I know I know. Some people have had uh, differing opinions on it, but um, it's it's a functional bicycle. And it's, you know, from my own uh, fabrication perspective and background, the intent was always to do it in a manner that, okay, maybe not practical from a um, business perspective by any means. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. Like, someone asked me <laughs> if I would sell it. And I'm like, I couldn't even price out what I would sell it for based on the hours and the materials. Uh-huh. You know, I spent more time and more material money making three lugs and two dropouts that I do typically on building an entire bicycle. I, mm-hmm. you know, from a business perspective, it's not at all practical. I understand that. Um, but functionally, from a, a, an object perspective of it being a functional bicycle, um, you know, I never intended to build something that was just for show. So from a fabrication perspective, that was always um, the driver of doing it functionally correctly. You know, the material is treated in a manner that it's functional as a lug. It's not just going to, you know, break. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like, it's interesting to see how people can look at something and be dismissive of it. Um, but I think it's also an indicator that sometimes people have an idea of how a process works in their mind and then, um, they don't understand maybe like how it actually works, particularly for Damascus. A lot of the commentary I got was, oh, well, it's brittle, but the, the, Funny thing is that I think most people's exposure to Damascus is obviously through knife, like kind of knife making and blade making and that type of thing, where, um, yes, knives are brittle because they're quenched because, um, you know, a desirable quality for a knife is uh, sharpness, which is translated to hardness. So you quench the material because that's the, you know, the grain structure that you want because that's the driving factor of the object, right? Mm-hmm. Um 
you know, I didn't quench the lugs. It's a bike, not a knife. Yeah. So <laughs> it went through, you know, appropriate annealing processes, heat treatment the whole time. And like, you know, do you think that I would really be able to cut a forged billet down to one millimeter sheet and bend it into a tube and then weld it and then carve it and then rebraze it if it wasn't properly heat treated? No, mm -hmm. like it, it would have broken. So, uh -huh. um, you know, for, for me as a fabricator, as much as this was a creative driver, it was also this really truly fabrication challenge for me of yeah. understanding, you know, you forged material is very hard and you have to heat treat it. And yeah. if you really think that I could have a, a one millimeter sheet of Damascus and form it completely into a tube without it breaking, without heat treating it, like, you know, I don't think that's an indicator of my misunderstanding of the process. Yeah. So that's kind of been a funny, funny yeah. thing. I, I kind of knew that that was going to, you know, like anything, if you make something and you put it out into the wild and put it on the internet, oh, yeah. there's always uh, someone that's going to have an opinion about it. Um, uh -huh. My favorite, uh, favorite term for that is uh, keyboard welders. They went to, yeah. you know, whatever I, that's great i had on so. the one of my favorite discussions related to that on this podcast was when i had um wade beecham from vulture cycles on and he's got mm -hmm. a lot of you know industry welding experience i think he actually did some weld inspecting i don't remember now but anyway he's definitely passed a lot of the tests like the d17.1 aerospace and that sort of thing and he he said he mm -hmm. said you know you know where you won't see a weld inspector is on instagram like they're not gonna grade your weld on instagram like mm -hmm. the people who are grading your welds at best they're like another a welder and a lot of times they know a very cursory amount and they want to impress you or they want to like convince mm -hmm. you it is yeah, like it's just funny to think of someone who's actually a weld inspector by day logging into Instagram and then like, you know, just doing their job for free to other people. Like what? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and there's always, you know, the the whole world of Instagram welding and all that. There's always commentary and there's always, I think it's a lot of back to that people have to try and flex to show what they're their their perceived chops are and and whatever but yeah um it's, it's just funny worst. particularly like there's this and i've had these conversations a lot now with this um again there's frame builders younger than me to me which sounds weird to say because i've always kind of been like i'm like i'm a young builder whatever now there's younger builders I know. <laughs> um, but like having these conversations with the these people being like, oh yeah, it's like, and, and not to say it all, I have, I definitely have a lot of older generation mentors, particularly in frame building and in the trades who have been great with me. But like, there's also people who are, you know, not that. Um, and see, having that uh, conversation with other builders who are kind of the next generation and, you know, mm -hmm. coming into this craft and they love it and they want to learn and they want to get there and they want to build the community and they want to see it grow and like all these great things. Um, but then a lot of times <clears throat> being met with this like kind of gatekeeping or this like old world attitude that if it's not this way, it's not right. Um, which is kind of like, I understand from a perspective, you know, functionally a bicycle has to be built in a in a particular manner in order to work and there's you know um physics and fabrication and metallurgy that you can't argue with a hundred percent i get it 
Um, but just because something is done in a manner that you don't do it doesn't mean that it's not right or yeah. can be functional. You know what I mean? So yeah. um, that's been that's been really cool to have those types of conversations with this younger generation of builders, which I think are more open to um, to experimenting creatively or pushing boundaries of how things, you know, form and function and whatever, um, mm-hmm. and kind of like keeping this craft alive in a modern sense. So yeah. that's really cool to see. Yeah. It's like uh, something akin to when uh, people compare you know, like the new technology, like let's say uh, electric cars or something to like internal combustion cars and be like, well, the range, where are you going to charge that thing? And it's like, you know, like yeah, they, they could be allowed to suck for a while as a stepping stone and then like you assume they get better or something, you know, and I, I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to make a statement about electric cars. I'm kind of up and down on those, but, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> the point is just that like, um, you know, like just because it's a new idea, like it's going to be like, obviously it's going to be able to, you can pick it apart and you can point out all the things that are wrong with it. Like, duh. Like it hasn't had like all this time. Sure. It hasn't had like a million people like applying their, their collective creative brain power to like refine it and figure it out. You know, like, like, of course, like what <laughs> you think you're so special. You can like poke holes in something new. Like that's the easiest thing in the world to do. Mm-hmm. Like somebody tried something like you should applaud that because that's the only thing that really like drives us all forward is when people are willing to take those mm-hmm. risks. And, and also, yeah, a lot of times when people are, they have that spirit, you know, it could be, it could be very well-intentioned and healthy, but I think a lot of times it's, it's not, I think a lot of times people are just mm-hmm. curmudgeonly and they're just trying to. Mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever, keep you Definitely. in your place. And I think too, like, you know, we kind of touched on this before, but a lot of like traditional trades, let's say, are um, very well documented or there's formal schooling or, you know, whatever is in place. Whereas frame building exists in this really interesting space of it being yeah. this old world trade and craft, but it there's no formalized, um, communication of what it is as a whole or how to do it or whatever, you know what I mean? It's all, it's this um, kind of craft that uh, grows and lives on by, you know, storytelling or whatever. It's one of those, like it's more organic as opposed to like this kind of straight trade where you go to school, you do this and you follow this, 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 this. Whereas frame building is more this like, community get person to person passed on thing it's hard to describe or hard to quantify in that way like mm-hmm. i don't i don't really know how to communicate it but like i think you know what i mean right yeah um, it's very different so yeah. it's it's shifting now with like youtube like paul brody's on youtube his youtube channel has blown up in the past couple of years of like documenting digitally this information making it more accessible in a digital world in a video world in a visual learning type of world um, but again, it leans so heavily on um, people in a community acquiring the knowledge and passing it on in a tribute to the craft. Um, and I always find it interesting or like confusing a little bit. Um, I mean, I guess I understand it from some perspective when some builders who've been you know, building for a long time are so, I understand wanting to protect the integrity of a craft and, um, you know, that kind of perspective, but this unwillingness 
to let it grow or mm-hmm. let it, you know, it's going to modernize in some sense or, you know, contributing in a positive manner to that thing that you love and has sustained you for your life, you know, to let it grow and keep it alive. Um, you know, I think it's this unique segment where, and I, generally speaking, you know, the generation of tradespeople that are retiring now, we don't have the amount of young people to replace them. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, in general, in trades and in frame building, you look at a lot of the greats and they're in their 60s and 70s and probably even 80s. And what happens when when they die? Where does mm-hmm. the craft go? Where does the knowledge go? Where does the skill go? What happens? Um, you know, there are, you know, there's this kind of mid segment of maybe, let's say, 20 year builders of 20 to 30 year builders where it's like, you know, they probably don't feel like they're at that level yet. And it's like, that's this interesting middle shift of, I think those people are more open to this kind of, you know, they have their foot in this old world of doing stuff, but also this new world of doing stuff. So um, I find it interesting. And like, obviously not to say that all old builders don't or have no interest in the craft moving forward or whatever, but it's Mm -hmm. interesting to see these different perspectives of people who are, willing to share their knowledge and love of the craft and you know you put it out there and give it to people and they take it and run with it in whatever perspective or or you know um direction they're going to go with it and that's how how the craft grows and carries on um and seeing people say that's not how you do it and i can't believe you would do this and you do this and you're wrong and you know whatever so it's it's really wild to see that kind of all these different perspectives of it and then yep. see also this shift of um you know this digi- digitization of it and um you know still not really any sort of like true formal teaching but a lot of younger people are now starting to teach um and you know hopefully in some sense also trying to make it a little bit more digestible or accessible to another generation in that manner as opposed to, you know, um, like the way that I'm trying to teach or have, um, you know, communicate the craft to people is I'm going to show you how I do it. I'm going to show you my process. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, think about it from your own perspective. If I show you one thing today, like obviously, okay, it has to be grounded in those kind of core things that we talk about for it to be functional, you know, and, and work. Um, but if you arrive at it in a different manner from what I've showed you, that doesn't mean it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just because you look at this same process from a different perspective or a different background or a different set of tooling or whatever, um, it doesn't mean that it's not right. So, yeah. I think approaching it with that kind of more open value mindset and, and, and really encouraging people to take it and make it their own. And like, obviously, yes, there are, you know, there's foundations that you have to build, build on. And like, you know, there's certain things that have to be a certain way in order to function. Yes, I I agree. And I understand that, but I think you also have to really like part of the beauty of it and part of keeping some sort of craft like this alive is giving that, core foundation to someone and letting them build it out on their own and see how it grows and see how exactly. it becomes bigger and better than you even ever thought. Right. So yeah. It's that's like how things grow and stay alive and like, you know, really flourish. So. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, if you really love it, you might be worried that the younger generation is going to screw it up. But I think there's like a... What's the meme with the the brain and it keeps expanding and there's more levels or whatever the consciousness is growing that meme anyway right the next level beyond yeah, being worried yeah the next level beyond worrying that the younger generation is going to screw it up maybe is to realize that like if you don't give them a chance to screw it up then like you ensure that it dies with you you know it's like, exactly and you know it's uh, if you if you love something and you are love this craft and you know, you're passionate about it is you can't, you, why would you just take it to your grave and just like, let it die with you? I don't understand that at all. It's very yeah. strange to me. And I would also say what you were saying about the skills gap and like in, in a lot of industries and trades, there's a lot of typically older men, but there's a lot of older people in these trades work positions, metalworking and all sorts of things who are like getting near retirement age and we don't have enough people to replace them and we need more young people and who are interested in this mm -hmm. and you could blame all sorts of things like, you know, parents and guidance counselors telling kids just to go to college and to avoid trades work and whatever mm -hmm. and the unions and things have changed over the decades, but we're in a position where like we just can't replace all these people and I look at something like, uh, you know, bike fabrication education and I think, okay, you're going to learn about design, you're going to learn about, you know, metalwork, you're going to learn about engineering, you're going to maybe even learn about business and all these other things. And, and then, you know, you, you can just stay there, but also like that just prepares you so much. I, I love manufacturing and I love running my own little business and it's not really frame building. It's just frame building adjacent, but like, I'm so happy mm -hmm. that I learned about any of this stuff and that like, I just think there's so many cool opportunities and like automation and robotics are so fascinating and CAD development. And in like, uh, I think there is a lot of artistry just in like industry too, uh, depending on where you work mm -hmm. and what you're working on. And so like to think that you could, you could learn that sort of stuff through bikes, what better way to learn is just like a really inherently like easy to understand and digestible and like really fun challenge. And then you can take that and you can be part of this solution that we need, which is like, you know, to, to be part of the people who essentially keep society running, you know, like uh, keeping machinery functioning and infrastructure mm -hmm. supported and stuff. I feel like that's a really, I think it's a compelling reason that, that people should I think people should be learning hands-on engineering and metalworking related skills. And I think bikes is a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, it's really interesting to see that kind of same thing. Like we're all just talking about bicycles, right. But all of the different approaches, like you mentioned, and going to something like Philly or going to different shows and seeing the perspective uh, and specialties that everybody approaches it from, even just that kind of fabrication section of it. Like, you know, you got your frame builders, you got your tool builders, you got your parts, um, you know, parts machinists, you have your sub assembly builders. And I say that, you know, like Paragon is like Paragon Machine Works is, you mm -hmm. know, they're a foundation of most of, let's yeah. say, North American frame building today, right? Yeah. Um, but it's like that's its whole, you know, that's a very, um, you know, project engineering and machining focus portion of it where, um, you know, I don't know Mark's background, but, you know, there's got to be some sort of love in bikes there that started it, right? Exactly. Like yeah. it all comes from this like kind of love of this core thing of the bicycle, 
which we all know and love and share for like, you know, it's the best and has so many great things about it. But all these like, even in, let's say, frame building, all of these offshoots of all of these different skills and traits and perspectives and whatever that people can specialize and focus and that kind of all stems off this one thing. It's really cool. So yeah, yeah, not just frame building. It's it's everything, right? Yeah. And I think there's just a lot of people, like I think of myself, I think there's a lot of people who are like creative weirdos and they're like, I'm not going to go to engineer school oh, yeah. or I'm not going to go to welding school. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm a, yeah. I'm creative. And then you put them into some sort of thing because they love bikes and then they learn how to make a bike. And then mm-hmm. turns out they actually really love that stuff and they're a great fit and they maybe would have never found it yeah. otherwise. I feel like there's a lot of people out there mm-hmm. that we need to reach and we need to like let them know that like, you know, just, just cause like you think you're one thing, you maybe don't know everything about the yeah. world. Like maybe it's, maybe there's more to it. I wanted to um, yeah. steer the conversation if it's all right toward uh, your yeah. cool shop, because I remember you moved into a new space when you moved back to DC. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that's yeah. like you built that or you built it out or one or the other. And I wanted to do machine roundup, which is a fun segment on this show. You just talk about the machinery that you have. Uh, so yeah, let's crack into that. Yeah. So, um, so I moved back to BC in 2019. Um, again, I always kind of wanted a reason to move back here, but at that point, you know, I started my business in Toronto and it was kind of like my whole life was grounded in Toronto. So it's a big commitment to move across the country for no, uh, real reason, let's say. Um, but, uh, my partner had a job transfer opportunity that, that took us out here. So it was kind of one of those things where it was like, well, the, the opportunities there, you know, I, I would love to move back to BC. And if, you know, this might be the ship to get me there. So let's go, let's figure it out. Um, so we, we kind of did it on a whim just, just to see. And again, it's one of those things is like, you know, you can always move and move back somewhere. It'd be a bit of a pain, but mm-hmm. you don't know until you try. Right. So um, we, we, went for it, um, landed in Squamish because, uh, wanted to buy a house. Absolutely would not be able to do that in Vancouver. Um, again, a little bit also part of the driver for leaving Toronto is like at that point I had been, I mean, I'd been renting in Toronto for 15 years. Um, and also, I mean, paying shop rent, not for 15 years, but paying shop rent is the past five, six years in Toronto on top of my apartment rent. Um, more than what my mortgage is now, but certainly can't buy a house in Toronto, um, you know, ever. <laughs> um, same thing in yeah. Vancouver. So that was kind of the thing. My my shop rent in Toronto was a handshake cash deal. So kind of that conversation, you know, I can't move across the country and start a new commercial rent somewhere. Like those, yeah. those are two very different numbers, right? So um Ended up buying a, a, a teeny tiny half duplex from the 60s uh, in Squamish. Uh, decent backyard, though. So built a shop in the backyard, which is a little bit, of, you know, of the fabricator dream backyard shop. Mm-hmm. It's pretty sweet. The Tin Shack um, Alliance. Yes, yes. The shop is, is actually bigger than my living room. So, you know, that's fine. There's worse problems to have. But mm-hmm. um, built it out myself from the up like dug the hole poured the concrete framed it out built the That's whole thing awesome. um, the 
the only advice I have about concrete is pay someone else to do it because it's horrible. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm I'm glad I did it. Um, I'll never do it again. There's, uh, you know, there was some self-leveling cement applied after. Um, I've, I've heard and the people give thing, that same exact advice more than once. Oh, it's oh, I I learned. I some I think someone told me not to do it, and I was like, I'm going to do it, and then I did, and I was like, hmm, yeah. Um, so I'll never do it again. Um, but I'm glad, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I built up the whole shop. It was like a really cool experience. I've done some, um, small structure building here and there, but like, this is the biggest, like self-contained full envelope structure I've ever built. So like, that was again, a whole cool experience for me. Um, only thing I didn't do was the drywall because, um, that was that was the one the one advice that I heeded where someone was like absolutely do not do your own drywall pay someone to do it so mm-hmm. pay someone else to do the drywall but everything yeah. else I did myself so um, that was really fun and again like just kind of that idea idea to fruition um, pipeline of okay I have a pretty finite amount of space that I can work within here um, you know there's two other backyards on either side and a big tree to the left so. It can only be a certain size. I have an idea of um, the amount of, you know, tooling and space and things and whatever I want to fit. So um, I did not have my mill and my lathe when I built it, but I, I, you know, understood the kind of max footprint of those machines that I would be able to fit in here and kind of design the space around it. I was just awaiting buying them, um, you know, that kind of small segment industrial machine is hard to get your hands on um basically anything that fits in a backyard or a garage space goes very quickly because you know people people want them there are actually um there were two lathes that i missed out on by like a phone call before i got this one because they had been snapped up so quickly um and this lathe um so i have a a Colchester student. It's like a 1963, I believe. Um, and I beat someone else out on a phone call for this one. Like I was there, <laughs> I went through like, uh, you know, the industrial um, kind of industrial supplier, those massive warehouses. They just have uh, aisles and aisles full of like, you know, machine cabinets and like every tooling nerd's dream of like, you know, whatever machines, right? So mm-hmm. um, there's one a few hours away from me and I was looking through their catalogs and I saw saw a mill that was a good size and then actually went to look at the mill um, and saw the lathe like tucked in a corner and I was like, that's the one. Um, and there was someone, someone had called in a deposit on it allegedly, but then they didn't actually get the deposit and there was a little bit of like, you know, the sales guys in the office, like we're kind of battling it out. And I'm like, I'm standing here with a credit card. Like <laughs> I'm here, I'm ready Just take my money. So take my money. Um, and then the guy, like the guy was only like, uh, he was up North somewhere and he was like only available by satellite phone or something. It was very wild, but it was like, I'm, I'm here. Like this is mine. So uh, I was really happy to get it. It's a, uh, quite a beast of a machine um and the colchesters have a bit of like almost like a cult following um they're like these old uk machines so it's a a really nice really nice piece and then the mill that i have is an excello um which is actually canadian made they're made i think it's uh late 80s i don't have 
think there's a year on it somewhere, but I'm not sure off the top of my head. Um, but they're manufactured in London, Ontario, which is pretty cool to have a, a, a big machine tool that's built within the country. It's like fairly rare, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, it's, they're both honestly perfect size for in here. It's kind of basically the max footprint that I can commit and a, you know, really nice power to footprint ratio, especially for a fairly small shop in a backyard. Yeah. Um, I have them both wired up by, uh, VFD. Nice. Um, I was, was just going to ask. Whole, yeah, that was a whole fun thing. Actually, um, uh, Rollingdale, uh, shout out to oh, another Dale. Canadian builder, uh, Dale in, um, I believe he's close, maybe not in Edmonton, but close to Edmonton, Northern Alberta ish yeah. area. Um, again, he's been, you know, I've been Instagram pals with him for, Oh my God, probably five or six years at least now. Um, and I think I maybe had seen a video that he posted or, or maybe he messaged me after I got them or something, but I knew that he had a VFD set up and, um, you know, I asked him a bunch of questions about his setup um, and he directed me through, he kind of, he walked me through a shop by video and said, yeah, I got this here and this plugged into here and this setup like this. Um, he directed me to the company that he got them from in Alberta. Um, and it's funny, he said, you know, these guys, you don't even have to explain what you're doing. Like these guys know all they do is deal with like, weirdos setting up industrial machines in their backyards. So you mm-hmm. just tell them what you have in the horsepower and like the power draw and whatever. And they'll be like, yeah, sure. This is what you need. So um, that was really cool. And like, that's just another like kind of example of the frame builder community being like, you yeah. know, so great and cool and easy. Cause like, you know, I probably could have gotten there on my own, but having someone in my immediate community, essentially being like doing the same thing that I'm doing and the same kind of need and output of it being like, this is what you need. This is my setup. This is how I, this is who I went through. Mm -hmm. And just like easily offering me that information was like so helpful and like made my life a lot easier because even getting from, you know, getting the, the VFDs and getting them wired in and getting them into the machines and programmed and everything, you know, that it was fine, but it's like, you know, it's a lot, it's a very thick manual, I'll say. So, um, took some time to get them, uh, get them completely dialed in and programmed and whatever, but they're working good. Uh, I'm pretty happy with them. I'm still acquiring tooling. Um, again, it never, ever ends. There's always, always more tool. Um, I have a, a, a medium decent amount of stuff for the mill. Um, lays i'm i'm pretty bare bones right now so uh, that's going to be my focus for the next little while is is really getting um again nothing too fancy but kind of getting all those basics set up so i have all all the stuff that i need to be running it on a regular basis um the mill i use probably every day and the lays i may be like i mean for this um for my philly bike it was the most that i've used it since i've gotten it just um, you know, cleaning up small pieces or making little bits or whatever. So that was fun. Um, but really just like, you know, dialing up my tooling and stuff and, uh, getting all the bits and pieces so I can really incorporate it more regularly into my kind of day-to-day use. But 
yeah. always more tooling it never ends yeah years ago i had a 1967 bridgeport you know the 9 by 42 step pulley j had one horsepower like the standard iconic bridgeport and i sold it eventually to make mm-hmm. space and then more recently i bought a newer import Bridgeport. And anyway, it was like a cornerstone of my shop for a while there. And I really had it tooled up the way I wanted it. I had hand built all these little racks and things on the wall. And mm-hmm. I had my Paragon hole saw arbors and hole saws. And I had my drill index. I had my taps. I had things labeled. I had clamps. And it was really set up quite you know conducive to like just getting work done in, in a manual milling environment. And then more recently, I picked up a, a manual mill again, which is great. But like, I don't have that kind of time to, like, set up the area. Like, I mean, I hope to do it eventually, mm-hmm. but, like, I don't really do that much manual milling. It's, like, here and there. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, it's – some people would never have known how nice it was to have things laid out, but, like, I really had them laid out nicely. And now I have to go yeah. back to this, like, disorganized ca- – like, I have a collet holder on the wall now, which is nice. But, like, I mean, I could spend a whole day or so just, like, laying out that area and putting all the tools in the right spot. And oh, yeah. I- I'm going to spend a cumulative, like, you know, three, four hours a year running that machine. So it's, like, it's kind of hard to justify the time. But right for a little shop, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's so it's, nice it's, to just have everything where you need it. Just to, yeah, get everything dialed. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that they both seem to be there fairly – functional and true right off the truck type thing. Um, You know, the, I have like one foul run out on the Colchester, which is like fine by me for something that's 60 years old and you know, the type of work that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, they got a good cleaning and I, uh, you know, changed the oil and did a basic service on both of them when I got them, but I haven't really I haven't, you know, dug into them too much um, because I kind of had to like get them in service because I, I, I wanted to yeah. use them. Um, so actually on the, on the Excello, someone ha- it's got the uh, auto oiling feature on it, which is really nice. You just kind of pump a handle on a reservoir yep. on the side and all like all the, the feeds get oiled. Um, it had grease in the lines, So we had to, oh, I had no. to like purge out the lines and it was a disaster, but anyway, it's all cleaned up now, but I haven't um, haven't like opened the head and looked at the gears, and I want to pull the table off. But you know, I'm a, it, it's one of those things like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. I want to pull it off and give it a full service and see what like you know. I've been watching some really deep dive you know um, videos on the machines on YouTube and stuff, and you know I can get new worm wheels and whatever and all that. Um, I think I need to replace some bearings in the head, but it's, you know, can of worms, right? And I'm, I'm afraid to pull them out of service and then not be able to put them back in service. Yeah. So I would like to do that this winter if I have time, but it's, it's a pretty big job, right? So, yeah. um, we'll, we'll see what happens there, but otherwise pretty happy with them so far. Yeah. What's so cool about picking up old industrial machines and then getting them running and getting them useful is like, even if you're in your shop a lot, like you're not going to beat it up. Like if they get beat up in industry. And so like when you take an old industrial machine, you clean it and you put it into service, it's like nearly guaranteed to last the rest of your life. You know, if it was quality Mm -hmm. in the first place and you just take care of it and clean it and oil it, like it's pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah. The, the Excello was, I don't know exactly what the capacity it was being run in, but it was definitely 
like on a line in a big industrial shop and probably did one operation just like over and over all day. Um, it had a had a number written on the front in Sharpie. So, you know, it's like number four, like it's just one of one of many. Mm-hmm. So um, and it like had about an inch of just like black old grease and like I mm-hmm. pulled pulled out the head and like just probably 20 years of chips fell out of it and like yeah. never been even cleaned. So even it just being like completely, you know, went through two bottles of simple green scrubbing the thing down and like re-oiling it and whatever. And like, you know, uh, putting new oil in the head and gearbox and stuff like that is, um, I'm only running it at, Oh my God a tenth of its capacity in my own day-to-day i'm not doing heavy heavy duty machining here right like Mm -hmm. um so yeah like you said it'll it's it's gonna live out the rest of its days in a you know it's in retirement retirement home here basically so yeah yeah that's it's so cool like uh these things because you know like old industrial machines like you were saying a lathe and a mill that fit into a garage they actually are a really hot commodity i know like anywhere in the western united states or canada and places mm-hmm. that don't have so many that are orphaned by industry it is harder to get your hands on them but in general where i've lived anyway industrial machines once they get to a certain age they're just not that useful to industry they just buy new ones and so you can typically get them kind of cheap and then they were built so heavy duty that it's like, yeah, you're just never going to, I love that. I, if I, if I had a business model that I could somehow just justify spending all my time cleaning up crusty old machines, I mean, it comes with its mm-hmm. own headaches, but like, it's just so satisfying though. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those, like I have a, a mini mill, um, just like a little King, they call it a, a milling machine. Um, I, would say it's a really nice indexable drill press. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of kind of smaller builders, it's the same one everyone kind of buys. I've got I get tons of yeah. questions about it on Instagram of people asking if it's, you know, good for frame building. Uh, I don't wholeheartedly endorse it. It'll get you there. It could potentially make your life easier. But in terms of like even frame building operations is like you're running that machine at like, it's max capacity mm-hmm. um whereas you know something like the Excello is like you're basically running it at its like minimum capacity yeah um and a lot of times even having like the little king in the shop is like i would just do stuff by hand because it's faster or easier yeah. um and just the, like the fixturing or the ability of the machine or there's just like so many um clearance issues in trying to like fit frame building type stuff mm, yeah, in the big, bed yeah. under the, 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 the table doesn't raise the head goes up and down. So it's like, it's yeah. not the best solution. It can like kind of get you there, but um, you know, I still have it. I basically just use it as a drill press now, but uh, it's funny to see like, you know, I've, I've blown up a motor on it. I've burned out some gears on it. I've burned out brushes on the motor, everything. I've broken all the T handles on it. Cause they're all plastic. Everything's plastic. Everything's plastic. plastic. So it's, it's the, it's the, the, the exact image of the conversation of like the new cheap kind of uh, crummy thing. That's like whatever all made out of plastic and like the old thing that's all, you know, cast steel and everything's metal and whatever, and it'll never break. So kind of both ends of the spectrum there kind of funny they're side by side yeah well they both serve their purpose i suppose yeah i had one of those mini mills and then 
I bought a Bridgeport and then I didn't use my mini mill for like a year or something. And I sold it to, um, was it Ross or Russ? It was a Canadian. You might've known him. Uh, but anyway, I sold it to a Canadian friend of mine who did some frame building and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for them it was like a new opportunity. So moved it on down the line. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you run what you brown and you figure it out, right? Yeah, exactly. I think we can pretty much wrap it up. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to yeah. cover? Um, no, I don't know. That sounds pretty good. I think that's that's the whole journey. That's it. You got it all. <laughs> cool. And if you want to know more, you'll just have to enroll in one of your awesome courses, and uh, and then yeah. you know you can you can get all the hot gossip and the rest of the the rest of the tales. Um, cool. Well, yeah. yeah. So so definitely. Um, I'm trying, I'm trying to like offer the courses more formally now. Uh, so I had nine students this past year, so I'm trying to do at least three and three, um, like three courses available in the spring and three courses available in the fall. That's like kind of my MO moving forward, because I think if you offer something more structured and formal and available, you know, it's kind of easier for people to, to access. Um, and you know, I'm happy to have anybody come in and sign up for the classes. Like I say no experience required. I've taught people with absolutely no metalworking, no shop experience, no nothing. Like I don't require people to have any experience. I'm, um, I'm trying to have my experience in the trades and as like a younger person and a woman in trades. Uh, and my learning experiences inform how I teach. So I'm trying to make it as, um, you know, accessible and a comfortable space um, and, um, you know, a, a good learning space and opportunity for people as possible. Um, so I'm happy to have anybody of any type of background and experience to come and learn. So if anyone has any questions, they can always shoot me a message on Instagram and uh, we'll go from there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being a guest on my podcasts, and um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you.